When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Jim. Thank you so much for listening to Euphemet. Tonight, we're doing something a little different. I'm giving you an interview I had with Carl Pfeiffer for the Patreon feed. In it, we talk about his involvement with Hellier and some of his perspective on the phenomenon in general. Why I'm posting this is because I'm back out on the road, in shadowy locations, learning unreal stories that I can bring back here to the podcast. What that's done is interrupt our production process. I'm sure that's a little bittersweet, but we're rolling with the punches as life opens back up and the road calls once again. What this means is we may just end season four where we're at now and very soon start a season five. You can expect more new Euphemet episodes very soon. Until then, join us over at Night Drift, which is restarting soon, and on Patreon and follow Euphemet at Euphemet and me at It's Jim Perry for all the breaking news about what the hell we're doing here in this very familiar yet strange new world. Enjoy this conversation Darcy Staniforth and myself had with Carl Pfeiffer in front of a live Patreon audience, and keep looking up. So first, I'd like to introduce officially Carl Pfeiffer, who has been passionate about the mysterious, uncanny, and supernatural in the world around him. Director of the groundbreaking episodic series Hellier, Carl won the first season of Sci-Fi's Ghost Hunters Academy and went on to appear on Ghost Hunters International. While serving as the resident paranormal investigator of Colorado's famously haunted Stanley Hotel for five years, he directed and edited the web series Spirits of the Stanley for the Dark Zone Web Network and conducted 250 investigations on the property. He's also a portrait and conceptual photographer based out of northern Colorado, a freelance filmmaker, and he's the author of two fiction books, which are really great. You know, I've like I've read one of them, read some of the other. And he's also he has a short out there, too, which is really cool. Uh, and of course, thank you, as always, to my co-host. Darcy Staniforth, writer and paranormal investigator. Carl, thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) Thanks for having me. This is going to be so much fun, I think. Well, I think we have to talk about Hellier first. (laughs) Um, Always happy to talk Hellier. (laughs) You know, what if right now I was just like, what is this Hellier you're talking about? Like, I've just never heard of the project. I'm I'm glad you brought it up, Darcy. Like, and I was hoping that may have been one of your first questions because it's definitely one of mine because I want to challenge Carl to describe Hellier to people who have never watched it before. But, you know, it's, I was trying to, you know, 
I've of course watched Hellier. I've, I've been engrossed in that whole mystery for for years and years and years now, and you know, for for what for for whatever reason, people have really connected to Hellier as this rich portrait of a group of friends, you know, uh, being bashed around essentially by the complexities of a reality bending paranormal investigation. It's you know, it's its greatest strengths perhaps being its truthiness and courage to show its own narrative restraint in which the real goblins are perhaps being expressed as synchronicity, uh, as maybe the great mystery itself. So, Carl, for those of the audience that wouldn't know anything about the construct of what I was just talking about, how would you explain Hellier to someone who's never watched it before? It's always a tall order, as as you guys kind of started there. Uh, I'll tell you, Connor, Connor Randall, um, my friend who's involved with Hellier on the show, he uh, he describes it so much better than me. He's so good at making things concise and like talking to strangers about it and being like, yeah, yeah here's what it is. Let me distill it down. And I always get really awkward. With, I'm like, I don't know. I made a show. Maybe you won't like it. Uh, but I mean, it's at the end of the day, it's a it's a documentary series about initially that starts with a, a friend of mine named Greg Newkirk, who's kind of a paranormal uh, journalist, blogger, adventurer type. And he got a strange email uh, at one point in 2012 about uh, from this man in Kentucky, rural Kentucky, a town named Hellier, who was experiencing these strange creatures on his property every night, kind of terrorizing his family. And Greg and him corresponded. They sent some pictures back and forth. And eventually the guy left his property and disappeared, uh, deleted his email address and, and vanished. And so the that's the premise. That's what it starts with is kind of following up on that story, seeing if he exists. But the whole thing really spirals from there into all different sorts of aspects of paranormal phenomena, uh, weird connections to the Mothman case, experiences of synchronicity and synchromysticism and uh connections sort of like largely theoretical connections about what these strange creatures might be are they uh traditional like fairy type creatures and goblins so to speak or is that connected to aliens like Jacques Vallée type stuff with the Mothman connection John Keel comes into play there's a very big like ritual magic element that starts to develop throughout it so um any one of those things would take too long and be spoilerish to delve into, but those are sort of the topics that, that kind of get in intertwined in what starts out as just kind of a story about a strange email that, that Greg got. And that's the beauty of it, right? Is that within Hellier, there's a little something for everyone. And it provides these illustrative paths for folks to wander down on their own and discover more books you know, more films that echo some of the phenomenon that you folks are experiencing and folks feel like they're experiencing it with you in real time. So I will ask you for those that do know what Hellier is and have watched it probably obsessively, <laughs> how is it to have directed Hellier? Mm. Um, it's, it's great. Uh, <laughs> it's Hellier. Hellier, like a couple of my other creative projects, um, at the end of the day, like my point of inspiration for these things comes from being a consumer first. And so mm -hmm. I consume a lot of content that I fall in love with. And you can only rewatch that content so many times uh, to 
continue to engage with that experience of that first time that like I want to recreate something, you know, the the stuff that I love, I want to not just consume it, but I want to create it too. So it's kind of like when I, when I create these things, it's just like the things that I want to see that aren't available or that, that haven't been made yet. And uh, so it's kind of an amalgamation of a lot of these things that I love. And so I put them together into something that I'm both proud of and deeply invested in because it's something that I I love so much. And so to get that sort of like uh, attention on a project like that is, is really validating. And it, it, there's a sense of community there because um, we're all kind of like in love with these same things together. And, and so it's, it's been wonderful. I think it's a, you know, it's, it's not without its controversy. It's a pretty controversial show. It's a, it's a love hate. It's pretty much either one. <laughs> I don't run into too many people that were like, it was okay. You know, it was, it's fine. Um, it's, it's you're the Zack Snyder hate. of the paranormal world. <laughs> it kind of is. It kind of is. Um, so that's, you know, but the, I, I don't have a whole lot of emotional bandwidth to deal with the, uh, the people that don't like it. So the sure. people that do, it's just very, it's a great community. It's, it's really satisfying and exciting. And, 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 uh, I think we really bond together over it all. I think it's, if anything, I think Heller has fostered a, a hell of a community for sure. Um, yeah, that, that would be for sure. I mean, I think so many people are finding themselves in the paranormal who may have never thought that could be even a possibility for themselves in their lifetime, right? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's brought sort of lapsed, uh, you know, sort of investigators back into the fold, folks who have maybe even wrote a book decades ago who are now, wait a minute, these kids are, you know, up to something over here and it's reflective (laughs) of some material that I wrote in the 70s or something. These these things are happening now and... And some of those individuals are actually even finding their way into this content. So it's an incredible community that is being fostered for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, we, the, the people who made it, including myself, like we all love so many different aspects of this phenomenon and we don't really discriminate. We've, you know, I was into aliens when I was a kid, you know, before the ghost hunting fad took off. And then the ghost hunting fad took off and I got into that because it was a little bit more accessible, but also something I loved. So being able to like explore, to, to find a project where we can explore all of these different aspects in one place has been really satisfying, a lot of fun. And I think that it uh, either resonates with people who have also been into that kind of content that haven't found it yet, or... um who didn't know that it was out there and are discovering some of that content for the first time. So I think that that's a lot of the fun sure. of it too. And, and that point of discovery for all this broadness of paranormal type stuff. Well, and that's something like I wanted to ask you about Carl. Cause like, I know for myself, like coming to hell year, I loved how much, this and I think this is where people's hot and coldness comes, right? Is that I think Hellier really changes the narrative. It's not this flash bang, you know. I think Catherine pointed out in the chat, like one star, no goblins, right? This is the mm-hmm. this is the joke review that has made it to t-shirts and things like that, but also the idea that it's not a bunch of jump cuts, it's not this Yes, it's edited, but it's not edited down into this really compact little formulaic piece. It's something that unwinds and you visit time and time again, and it really challenges you in a lot of ways. So 
I'm wondering for folks out there, like, is that something that you and Connor and Greg and Dana knew going in was going to be more this approach or was it more like, Hey, this is what it came to be as the process unwound. Or I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that process unfolded for you all. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit of both. There's definitely kind of a plan going into it. Um, Connor and myself, we had been coming off of Spirits of the Stanley, the web series at the time, and we were working with a production company on trying to get a TV show off the ground that was kind of just like a TV version of Spirits of the Stanley at a different location. Um, but throughout that process, we like we were spending so much time trying to develop the paranormal show that we wanted to see that a lot of those elements kind of started to come up in there between like the stuff that I was really into with my background that I love to watch. Um, and I like I love the cerebral, artistic, kind of beautiful, like slow-mo type, abstract documentary type stuff. And so I wanted to do a paranormal show that was kind of in that space because before this for 15 years, we've kind of had somewhat cookie cutter shows that have been trying to tap into this like formula of of paranormal investigation. And, you know, I understand that that's kind of a risk for networks, but we we're just making something ourselves. So we're like, let's make this <laughs> thing that we wanted to watch. And that was something that was going to be like, it's going to be slower. It's going to be a little bit less trying to like punch up some of these moments um, that some of the other shows do and instead try to dig into a little bit more of the thoughtful aspects, kind of present the stuff in kind of a beautiful way. And so when that show kind of like fell apart, I was like, let's just do this with this Hellier project. Um, I wanted to have a bigger budget for it, but at that point it was just like, let's just shoot it with what we had. I think that's an aspect and it's tough because I don't want to characterize like too many of the different like camps of bad reviews when I'm not like reading them all the time. But I think that there's the one (laughs) camp that just like, it's not their, their taste for something slower paced and more abstract like that, um, which is fine because we knew going into it that we were like, we don't want to make this for everyone. You know, like that's, you sort of lose when you make something for everyone, it kind of like loses the, the depth that it could have for individuals. So we're like, let's make something more niche. And so we knew that that would lose some people, but I think that, you know, there's other aspects. The first season, um, we didn't have anything like, like we had some crazy stuff happen, but it was also like very subtly. So, and so if you weren't totally on board from the get go and engaged with it, like it seems kind of like a stretch and it's kind of slow and maybe they should have cut it faster. And, and, you know, like there were some amateur elements there where we're still figuring out what we were doing as filmmakers. So I think that a lot of those things, like, if you don't kind of like see past that or you don't quite like that kind of content, then like at the, the house of cards just totally falls and it just like, is not the show for you, um, (laughs) which again is fine. So I think that it's just, it's kind of got that structure where, where when it wasn't based in, in the beginning to be for everyone. And then it has more of that slow burn approach where you really have to kind of like, uh, become invested in the story. Uh, it's going to lose some people along the way. And some people just like when we, the other side was like shooting it more like a movie, which was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to bring the cinematic look to it and blur the line between documentary and the, the fiction feel. And so some people, especially like with the goblin on the poster and then looking kind of more cinematic, like a movie, I think (laughs) people's expectations it was a blank slate. Like no one knew what was going to happen in the show. Right. And so then by the time they get to the last episode, 
episodes, some of them were expecting something more tangible because right. they, some of them even thought it wasn't even real. They so thought the, the goblin on the poster was, was going to pop out. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. Where, where's like, the guy think, in the poster? I think a lot of people were expecting that. We were kind of hoping for that, but you know, <laughs> so that's kind of where the, the goblin joke comes <laughs> right. from was because it had kind of the buildup for it. But you know, happens. very M night Shyamalan, like, right? Like <laughs> yeah. where it's like, here's the big thing. But you know, I think what you're talking about though says a lot about just where we are kind of culturally with things. And I think that it's that for those of us who are trying to bring, I don't want to get snobby, but like a higher brow to what we're doing in regards to investigation, the way we craft the stories, we write about these stories, and you know, for me engaging with season one and then when greg and dana were kind enough to send the link to season two as it started i was just like oh i i'm so excited to kind of get back into these things and to see these but i also look at it like i have a film background so i look at it from this like filmmaker's standpoint of i don't want everything so on the nose and so in my face i don't want a bunch of like as I call it, all this brost hunting. I don't need a bunch of people like running into a room yelling at things. I want things to unfold. And I think it's also like, it's a conversation I've been having a lot lately with people where we don't see process anymore. Like everyone just thinks like you go into a location and then stuff starts happening and then we record it and we edit it and we bring it to you versus like, this is how things get started through an email, through a conversation, like all of these different aspects that take time to unfold. And yet on the other end, man, have I been reviewing some documentaries lately where I'm like, oh, did are you familiar with uh, Carl Pfeiffer's work? Because it's clear <laughs> that you are, because this looks a lot like Hellier. And I don't want to like overtly be cruddy and call people out. But even if people aren't admitting it, it they're, it's so influence, influencing this world in such a different and powerful way. And it's awesome to see. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's amazing to see that kind of a reach. And uh, I think, um, I don't know, like I, it's interesting to be at that point, but it, it makes sense too, because we, we got to try something new with Hellier that other shows had the difficulty because a lot of the other people that are making those are, are in the industry. And it's it's a hard sell to try to be like, we're going to do something completely different. And they're like, is it is anyone going to watch that? Let's do something slow and really kind of like highbrow and intelligent. And, you know, like uh, I can see the resistance to that. So we got the chance to be kind of like the first one to breach the ground in there. And so if, if there's people following that now, I think that that's, that's cool. Like I always want people to do like their own thing. But like it it it's humbling and honoring that like it's had that kind of effect, but it also is like, makes sense that if it has had the kind of reach that it has that, you know, people are like, cool, that's a style that clearly is like working on some level. So we can try some of that too. And I think that's fun. Well, it's really brave of you guys to take it on and just do it. And I know you and I are in agreement of just doing what you can, uh, when you can, it, it, you know, we look outside of the paranormal realm for a lot of inspiration and we go back to looking at sort of like the mumblecore Duplass way of doing things. Just do what you can do, honestly. I'm going to read a couple comments here from the chat. Uh, Heather says, every time Hellier got to this point where I thought, now this is just too far. It kept pulling me in. And by the time you get to the end, I was all in on everything. It's lived rent-free in my head ever since. 
Mm. That's great. <laughs> That's so cool to hear. I got to like screenshot that. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Carl, were there times in the process of either you guys being out in the field shooting or, you know, you being in the edit bay there where you just go, shit, is this too far? Like, is this scene mm. too far? Should we show some restraint here? Or how was that process? You know, it, it happened. There's plenty of times out in the field where we, you know, had those moments where we're just like, what, like, how can this get weirder? Like, this is so bizarre. Um, I, th I think that that's, that's part of my barometer really is if we were having that moment out in the field, then that meant it was good for the mm -hmm. episode, you know? Um, yeah. It was probably a little bit harder in season one, but it was good because we were just shooting everything all the time. Our cameraman for season one, Rashad, was very good about just like sitting still or standing still for two hours while we just talked, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And that allowed us to have enough content to sort of like build up to the synchronicities in particular, because there were some of those that were just kind of jaw dropping and, and plenty in season two, even that were just nuts. And anyone that's had a weird coincidence like that, trying to tell a friend, it never really lands because it didn't happen to them. They weren't in that moment yeah. where you're mm -hmm. like, whoa. And right. so the cool part about Hellier was like in documenting all of that, um, pacing be damned potentially for, for those who didn't like it, but it allowed you to be on that journey. And so the synchronicity happens to you as it happened to us. And it's not just us like telling the story in a, in a yeah. recap sort of a sense. Um, and that I think opened the door to let those moments unravel. And so everyone was along for the ride at that point. So if we were left flabbergasted, we knew that that would have a good effect on the people. I think the harder discernment would be, um, for some of like the connections we were trying to make or some of the, like what felt like leaps, you know, and sort of like, is this a connect? Those are sort of the <laughs> moments that I would have more of a time in the edit bay where I'd kind of sit back and be like, is this, is this too much of a jump for the audience to, to right. follow and buy into? And maybe right. to a fault, I'd kind of use myself as the barometer for that, you know, like, it's not like it's all about me, but as the, someone who's telling the story, I'm kind of like when people are sharing theories and ideas on the team, I kind of get the final say at the end of the day where I'm kind of like, can I present this in a way that people can follow that connection or do we need to wait until there's more? Um, you're the best so choice not, for it. You're, <laughs> well, you, you're like the most prudent of, of yeah. any of the bunch, right? Yeah. Like Carl does this thing where you'll you'll ask him because if we have time later in the show, we'll, we'll talk a, a little bit about some of the things that maybe like Carl and I experienced together during season two of, of yeah. Met. And there'll be a point in time where you go like, Carl, is this like, what's going on here? Is, is this real? And Carl's the first one to go like, Hmm, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> so I like there's, there's two brains here where there's the skeptic brain that's just kind of like, are we just kind of going on? And then there's yeah, the believer right. brain that's just like, right. what is this? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and I'll but always also, speak like, both. <laughs> how much of that though, like in like talking about that brain, right? Like there's in the field and then there's in the edit bay. So were there moments where all of a sudden you were in the edit bay going like, oh, wait a second that has a totally different read as i'm watching back they're maybe not in the uh, i mean i do definitely have a little bit more of like the bird's eye view of the case because editing it like i i 
see it all and I remember all the quotes because I experienced them over and over again and everyone else experienced them once until they see my rough cut. Um, so some of those connections are there. Sometimes I'll be like, oh, this is super weird. We had this conversation earlier. But most, I think, at least at this point, being being as long out as it's been since I was last editing it, I think most of the bigger aha moments were like enough in our brain that we remembered them in the moment as they happened. Mm. And mm-hmm. some of the edit bay ones, some of them I'll notice I'll be like, Oh, that's kind of cool. But some of them, like we had to release and kind of put it out there and mm. then rewatch it ourselves way later before we'd have those moments. Like Dana's tarot card reading in season one, if you rewatch that after season two, it feels like it has much more impact on some of the stuff that's starting to develop, you know? Um, and so there's stuff like that, that I don't necessarily have the perspective on in the edit bay yet, but there is definitely stuff that in hindsight, you know, and, and seeing the video content part, like makes connects and, and has some interesting moments for sure. Let's talk a little bit about some of the connections that happen in real time for individuals watching the series. Was <laughs> there a handful or any of them in particular that stunned you? The synchronicities that occurred to others while just watching the programming that dovetailed or synchronized with what you all were exploring or finding? I want to say yes. Um, It's always kind of a deluge. A lot of people have had synchronicities watching it, um, which is super difficult. I think it's super cool, but it's also hard because then they all become that kind of recap story where I'm just like, that's, that's awesome. Like I'm really excited for you, but it, it doesn't impact me in the same way as, as those synchronicities don't. Um, so I'm just kind of like, that's, I think that that's really neat, but, um, I can only do so much with that. Some people have put some, some connections together and I feel like there's one right on the tip of my tongue, um, that I'm trying to recall, um, that were just kind of crazy. I think, I mean, honestly, I think it's the one that you probably see in season two, honestly, the, uh, the wagon wheel type stuff that one night that there was like those three synchronicities and in particular, um, the, the gentleman, Chad, who was like literally this night that there was all this like weird injured colds house wagon wheel type stuff. Chad's over here. Just like, man, I'm trying to figure out like where this, this wagon wheel was, but I can't, you know, the only one I can think about was this wagon wheel in my alma mater town of Ashland, Ohio. And we're like, that's really weird. You say that cause it's Ashland, Kentucky, you know? So it's, that was one of the coolest ones that like was just so many like fingers pointing at that, at that moment. And it was happening and unfolding and he had no idea. Like we didn't, we didn't share that info. Like he had to watch the episode (laughs) before he learned that particular (laughs) synchronicities impact. But that was probably one of them that was the most, it wasn't exactly from him watching, but him continuing the exploration and research on his own. But that was just like a pretty undeniable one that we were just like, what is going on? Like it's, it's going out from here. The sinks are happening to people who don't even know that they're happening to them. Uh, And that's, that's a bizarre kind of idea. Yeah. And, and yeah, it resonates. Um, Let's go to a few questions from the interwebs this one is from our friend ryan sprague with uh, somewhere in the skies podcast he asked carl what piece of the puzzle or piece of evidence has impacted you most about the hellier journey Mm. 
That's a good question from Mr. Sprague. That is a good question. You know, he should do a show where he asks people good questions like yeah, that. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. He should. <laughs> we, you know, we've been talking to him about it for a while, and he just won't do it. Ah, he just, just won't resisting. do it. Um, that, it's a good question. I think, you know, it's it's one of everyone's favorite topics, but honestly, I think it's the synchronicities in a lot of ways, um, potentially because I think there's... Um, for me, at least in particular, paranormal phenomenon doesn't really happen to me very often. Uh, Jim and I joke about this all the time that like, you know, he sometimes he's much better at it than me. But like, I feel like I'm just like a psychic rock. Like, what is it? Psychic negative? Um, like not a lot of stuff happens around me. And so the synchronicities in particular with Hellier have been some of the most like obvious phenomenon, at least like that's happening to me. And so it's been such a fascinating journey, um, especially with my critical eye to those where like the initial ones that started the case were super weird, but I had no expectations that they would continue throughout the case. I thought, thought it was just a starting point. So when we continued in season one and more of them happened, I thought that, that was super interesting, but it was interesting too, to like study my own expectations and what actually happened to us. Because in season two, when we went to like, um, Ashland and Point Pleasant and followed up on some of these things, uh, especially Ashland too, for how significant it seemed, there was no synchronicities on that entire trip, you know? And so I thought that, that that's kind of interesting. Cause I was like, was I expecting them to be part of this? Was I expecting that they mm. might disappear sometimes? Um, and it seems like in somewhat objective fashion, they will happen or they won't happen. And I think that's kind of like interesting to to note where it's like, is that something that we're just making connections that don't actually exist? Then you'd think that that would kind of be happening all the time. Um, so my kind of my journey uh, with those synchronicities has been interesting to me in regard to it being in a way of like actual phenomenon happening to us, just a completely different form of manifestation. Um, and they've gotten a little quieter since season one. We don't talk about them quite as much in season two. Um, because that was a much more sporadic season. So I think that, that that's probably one of the most interesting ones because it was very direct and somewhat objective in the way that you could just pay attention to when it was or wasn't happening like any other manifestation might. Yeah. And the implications mm -hmm. of it are kind of mind-boggling. Like synchronicities themselves and these coincidences are such a like mystical underlying universal reality structure that's just like what like how how can anything make this happen? You know, like they that's surely a level are. Of, Ugh. And and I think more than any other sort of show or or film, Hellier presents those, and it, it you know it's hard to grasp for some folks that haven't experienced many themselves. I think, especially to the point that they're very convenient. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, you know, if you're writing a screenplay, you know, there, 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 there's certain, you know, sort of rules or guidelines about like, you know, listen, that's like a little on the nose. Like that's convenient. That character well, stumbled the, into that trap. The hand of right. the writer being shown. If you like right. tip, yeah. tip the scales like right. that, you know, if you set something up like that, that's the hand of the writer being shown. So like when that happens in real life, like who's the writer in this scenario that, you know, like that's the cosmic sort of like WTF moment right. of, of the implications. Well, and I think not just the synchronicities like of the experience itself, but like you're pointing out the synchronicities that people have pointed out that have like something is like shockwaves out. And even for people who are not necessarily like talking about the synchronicities tied directly to Hellier, 
but then other connections through the paranormal community or like, oh, I didn't know you were connected to this. Like, it's just this, it feels like it's this weird pulling together of almost like, these are all the right people that are supposed to come together to understand what's going on. And that mm-hmm. sounds super over the top mystical, but at the same time, it's hard to ignore that that seems to be what is happening. Yeah. Yeah. It feels somewhat initiatory, especially when the sort of premise that I set up, you know, with the prologue of Hellier was a synchronicity starting my involvement in the case and then synchronicity start other people's involvement. And now so many people have experienced that when they watch the program, it kind of feels like not just as a sort of almost requirement for a team member's initiation on screen, but with the universality of it to so many people, it almost feels like it's just kind of a a broad initiation in some ways to the entire audience in a way that's beyond just the, the team's experience. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm curious, what have you learned about yourself from this? Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> there's there's some deep stuff here maybe jim uh <laughs> i think i mean i've learned a bunch because like hellier is something that's like always going on in the background you know and, mm. and, and in more ways than one like if you watch spirits of the stanley and then hellier seasons one and two you're basically like watching me learn how to be a filmmaker you know mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. when hellier is always happening and it's been happening for four years now um and it's so closely tied with with my latest creative endeavor of, of filmmaking. Um, it almost kind of encapsulates like everything from the last four years, you know? So it's just kind of like what I've learned about myself and changed at all in the last four years is kind of like you can tie it back to Hellier. But I mean, from just kind of the boring, simple, like like me learning and becoming a better filmmaker to you know, just like the, the challenge of putting myself in uncomfortable situations. Uh, and, and I'm not a very, I'm a pretty shy introverted person. So when we're at a gas station in rural Kentucky, I'm not the one that wants to have a camera attracting attention to himself or approaching strangers (laughs) talking to them. Like I'm so Dana and I are like, we're, we're two buddies in those situations because both of us are just like, we can (laughs) wait in the car. That's right. Right. Um, so, you know, there's stuff like that, like learning about pushing my comfort zone and boundaries, uh, especially in the way that typically if I'm in a situation where I need to be doing that, um, it's usually good content for the show. So get over it, Carl, because this is going to be great. <laughs> right. So it's been all kinds of stuff, you know, just kind of uh, challenging myself to um, get better at stuff. <laughs> but yeah. I think in, in a, in a more abstract way too, I think Hellier's actually made me a little bit more skeptical too. Mm. Um, mm. it's, it's been a weird journey. Um, maybe my own sort of initiatory journey with it all, uh, by the end of season two, like you kind of start to see that, uh, like if when Hellier feels that big, like it's building to something, mm-hmm. um, I think that there was that feeling that we felt in the cave and I still feel in some ways, it's just sort of that level of like disappointment when you're like, I feel like there should have been some, like with the amount of weird twists and turns that are happening to us, there's almost an expectation for something more tangible in a paranormal sense to happen. And when that Hmm. doesn't happen, it sort of makes me question all of it where I'm like, are we just putting ourselves on? So I I think I'm Hmm. at sort of like a weird lull right now in terms of like a skepticism about it all. But um, I think that that's just also part of the roller coaster journey of like looking yeah. into this sort of stuff for as long as you have. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I suppose that, that, you know, and, and I'm probably biased because of my relationship with you folks, but you know, I, I never felt any level of disappointment because I think I was so immersed in the character study that Hellier is yeah. that, that it almost was apropos for there to be a cliffhanger that then results in something that is maybe a little bit disappointing for you folks, because at the heart of it, you got mm-hmm. to see a, you guys face challenges individually, um, break out of your own comfort zones. Mm-hmm. Even Greg, who oh, yeah. <laughs> is gregarious, <laughs> you know, no pun intended there, had had to had to had to go through some deep transformational experiences there to step into his power in which he may have inherited through his lineage, right? Of being a preacher's son and yeah. having to take on this role uh, almost conversely. And you saw you guys sort of bend until you almost broke mm. and then have to face your fears and this idea of complete utter failure. And what do you do with it now? Yeah. That was that was really pushing on us at the end of that season too, because like we went out knowing we were shooting the last three episodes. It was really weird because we'd just done uh, Michigan Paracon and mm. we announced season two. We announced the release date and we showed the first trailer, and then a week later we all got together to shoot the last three episodes of season two. So we were like had this like big mindset where we were like living in real time these final three episodes, knowing that there was going to be a crescendo, and then that added stress of kind of like something has to happen. Oh, it didn't. And then like the, I think that's what we attributed some of that ego death to as we talked Mm -hmm. about it, as we came back, because we were kind of like, is that part of the ego death that like we have this, like feels like it's a big buildup and then we Mm -hmm. have to release something where like kind of nothing happens again. And I think Mm -hmm. that it's kind of fascinating because that season one had a lot of disappointment where people expected something bigger to happen and it didn't quite at the end. Season two, I think, is really fascinating because it feels like kind of the same result where we went, we finally get into a cave and then nothing super crazy happens. But like I, not that I'm spending any time in the bad reviews on Amazon, but like I feel like there's no real conversation about that, like no Mm -hmm. disappointment. Like, and I think that that's a kind of a testament to what you, you just said there, that uh, there was more going on in that cave, whether as characters in themes or personal kind of experiences of trying to get through that, that I think is, uh, is really interesting that that was all in there and by design, but that even I as a filmmaker didn't really recognize how much work those things were doing. And that I was still just kind Mm -hmm. of that simple, like, ah, no goblins. So I guess it's another one star season. <laughs> you know, so it's it's kind of right. fascinating because I'm even the creator and I'm like, oh wow, there's something going on. Yeah. So. Right. But I think that kind of ties back to what like we were talking about a little earlier and like what Jim was saying as far as like kind of being independent and not maybe trying to think about like, oh, what does the studio want? What are the executive producers outside, you know, that are back in the offices or the VPs want and things like that. But also it makes me think about like the beginning of large movements, right? Mm. And movements that change the world. And I know people might be like, that's a paranormal documentary, settle down. But like, (laughs) I think about when we are talking about, I mean, we've seen so much about disclosure and people becoming more attuned to things and more open to having these conversations where 
thinking about these things moving forward, and especially because Hellier brings in so much of so many different aspects. It's not just goblins. It's not just UFOs. It's moth. I mean, there's like so many aspects, but like, how did the people at the beginning of huge moment, like movements feel? Like, did they come to the end because the savior, the big denouement, the whatever it is, didn't happen? Does that make you believe any less? Or does it just be like, hey, we're part of this movement and we're just not to that part yet, hmm. yeah. but we're on the path. Like, that's kind of the thing that I think about. And I understand that, like, disappointment, but I think it's also part of that training that we've been focused on is like, oh, it's supposed to have a little bow and then we can put it up on a shelf and then go. And that's where we finished up with Hellier or before we move into season three, because so much of when we think about episodes is cliffhangers, what like previously on the OC or whatever, you know, like these yeah. things. And so those, as opposed to a series, thinking about it more as a movement. That's, it's a big way to think about it for sure. And it kind of a, a way that's almost like hard to like process. Cause in some ways, just like a simple way, like I haven't been around too many movements to know if it's if it is similar to that, you know, um, but it seems to be. And I think that, that was kind of the sense that we were getting towards the end of it, especially um, maybe it was just a way of like kind of placating myself. But it felt right. That it was just kind of like, well, filming this thing in this cave is part of the ritual. And it feels like there wasn't a climactic finish of this ritual and maybe in part that's because it's still going, you know, and like whatever was happening mm. there is being witnessed now by people and it's still enacting. So I, I could just be offsetting the old traditional mold by being like, well, maybe in that case, then the goblins will only come out when it's the series finale at the end of season three or five, you know? Um, <laughs> but I feel like that's also setting up the exact same kind of old expectations. And so we joke a lot about how these things will go or how they might end but I think uh, it's, yeah, to, to be a much more ambiguous ending than that. I, I can think of reasons how that could be ambiguous in and of itself. But I think that in a functional sense, yeah, like it's it's most likely going to be much more abstract than that. And I think that that could probably move a lot more people than a boring debate about whether or not that shadow we caught on the cave wall was a goblin or not. <laughs> you know, so uh, I think that that's sort of that larger cerebral uh aspect of hellier for sure even though i want to see a goblin shadow like come on that'd be great content. sure right right uh, we're gonna move to some questions here in the chat friend of the show yeah. matthew jackson asks carl do you find that synchronicities lose their impact over time personally i feel that when i'm experiencing synchronizations in the moment i find them powerful but as time passes and self-doubt seeps in i question their validity it's like personally undermine it's like i personally undermine the experience 100 percent. i think that that's also true with um all of paranormal experience uh mm. i think that when something out of the ordinary happens uh in the moment it's the craziest thing you've ever experienced you know and I think that when the ordinary continues to happen after that moment, it starts to feel like more and more of an outlier. And I think that uh, it's it's harder to remember that weirdness. I think it's it's a really good reason to write down any sort of paranormal experience, synchronicity or otherwise, um, because 
the more thoroughly you can write down or record that experience, the better chance you have of going and reliving it. So that's a, a lot of me looking back on Hellier is a little bit more cynical and sort of like, oh, are we just barking up trees? Like, what are we doing? Hmm. Um, but when I rewatch Hellier, I'm kind of like, damn, like that that's actually really crazy. I forgot about all that. So hmm. I think that they absolutely do fade. Um, I think it's hard to remember the specifics that make them crazy sometimes. And it's, you kind of forget the context because it all blurs together. So I think that that's not um, a judgment on the objective nature of the synchronicities or the paranormal phenomenon. I think it's more of just like your brain contextualizing like weird experiences that if it doesn't happen any day, it, it fades away. And so I think that that is just more of a testament to the power of just like recording stuff um, and that benefiting uh, your future kind of respect for those experiences. And it could yeah. also be an, uh point toward um, why a lot of people forget that they have paranormal experiences, you know, like yeah. why so many people are like, aha, I totally forgot for like 15 years that I saw an mm -hmm. apparition of my dad when I was six. And you're like, how do you forget that? And you're like, because that never happens. And yeah. your brain, your brain kind of overwrites it. Um, so yeah, I think that that absolutely happens. They totally fade. Friends of the show, Daniel and Ariel ask, is there any part of you that wonders if we've all just talked ourselves into this thing? Mm. Constantly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I feel like it all the time. I think that it goes back to that weird uh, dance that I have with that last answer where stuff fades and the more that that fades and I'm not like researching Hellier, I'm not watching the episodes. I don't remember the specifics of some of the synchronicities. It feels more and more like I'm like, are we just, you know, doing magic rituals and talking to people mm. who do magic rituals. And we're just like making connections that don't exist and talking on headphones with a blindfold and just like making connections to random words that come out. Like, yeah, a lot of it starts to feel that way. Um, but going back to the last answer, I think that that's the validity of, uh, or, or the value of re-experiencing some of those moments and documenting them well, because then you kind of like, you get the validation that you're not just stretching quite as much once you get to re-experience right. it, I think. And we'll be right back after this. As the days get longer, the weather better, and friends coming back into your life, have them over for a delicious home-cooked meal. Try Every Plate, a meal kit that makes it easy and affordable to cook hearty, delicious meals with recipes that come together in about 30 minutes. That's faster than a trip to the grocery store, more affordable than takeout, and now about the same price as a coffee. Because you can get started with Every Plate for just $1.99 per meal, plus an additional 20% off your next two boxes by going to everyplate.com and entering code euphemet199. I've had a full week of every plate and it's really good and they're fun to make. If you're like me, you may even learn a few new cooking techniques along the way. You won't get bored with the food either because they have a changing menu of 14 recipes per week featuring a range of flavors and ingredients and they work with nationally recognized suppliers who make sure the ingredients are fresh and high quality when they turn up to your doorstep. 
Every plate provides easy to follow recipe cards and pre-portioned ingredients so you can spend less time prepping and cooking and more time enjoying good food with family or loved ones. And while meal kits are normally associated with luxury and a premium price tag, every plate makes it possible to get high quality, tasty meals that don't break the bank. Get meals you'll enjoy and your bank account will love delivered right to your door contact free. So try every plate for just $1.99 per meal, plus an additional 20% off your next two boxes by going to everyplate.com and entering code UFAMED199. Thanks for helping the show out, Every Plate. Is that a chill in the air? It reminds us that Halloween is right around the corner. But why wait until October to celebrate? Shudder is once again supersizing the spooky season with 61 days of Halloween starting in September. Shudder's biggest, best lineup of new movies, new series, and classic favorites ever. This month kicks off with two Shudder originals hot off the film festival circuit, Rental Gone Wrong Thriller Superhost on September 2nd, and Ghostly Chiller Martyr's Lane on September 9th. Then things really heat up with a new season of Creepshow, premiering September 23rd. And thanks to AMC Network Shudder, you can watch those films and more for free right after you finish this episode. To try Shudder for free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com and use promo code UFAMED. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com with promo code UFAMED. Did you watch those films I recommended in July? The McPherson Tapes? Arch Enemy? Well, here's another one. The 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You can watch that now on your Apple TV, just like me, your phone, or about any other device and enjoy the largest, fastest growing human curated selection of thrilling entertainment. It's the best streaming service for horror and the best for Halloween scares. New stuff is added weekly and it's just $5.99 a month or $56.99 a year. But you can try Shudder for 30 days for free and help support Euphemet while you're at it. Just go to Shudder.com, S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com and use promo code Euphemet. Patron Liz, she adds, I've learned these last few years that there's a big contradiction after expansion. Periodically, I drift back from paranormal stuff. A few weeks go by and I realize I've just tabled all this stuff, had a big world-facing time, and then come back to it refreshed. It's so reality-bending, it takes a lot of bites of the elephant. Now, have there been individuals you've spoke with, Carl, perhaps just folks you don't know that are viewers of Hellier that that do say they have to come back to it. They have to take another stab at it. They have to watch it a second time. Oh yeah. Before they truly appreciate it or, or yeah, or internalize I it. I don't know if too many people that have sort of like explicitly said that they had to like take a break from it for a while and then come back to it. But it's a very popular theme of like people getting added benefit from coming coming back to hellier uh and rewatching it multiple times i think that's a bit different from the question being asked um but i do agree like having been at the stanley for five years doing that and having been like 
kind of stubbornly focused on my few passions in life for the last 10 years. Um, the paranormal in particular does come and go. And that could be the case with any sort of passion or research or interest. But for me, I find it's, it's directly tied to these sort of, um, the level of results I'm getting from mm -hmm. like a paranormal mm -hmm. experiences. Cause then I'm like excited and I'm digging into everything. <laughs> and when that wanes for a while, you know, like it kind of feel like I'm, like it's less motivating. And so I think that sometimes yeah. that's the cycle mm -hmm. is like what's happening to you. And that's not very often for, for some people, but I think in other ways it could just be sort of a natural cycle where your brain just needs to like relax and like rediscover what it loves again and then come back to it like refreshed. I think that's, that's not exclusive to the paranormal either, but that sort of cycle is very common, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We, we I know how that one feels. Yeah. Well, and that's something I was going to, I was kind of ask about because, you know, when I watch people respond to hell you're online or like in the museum chat for, uh, the museum of the paranormal and occult, the traveling museum, of the paranormal and occult Dana's, uh, and Greg's group, like there's a real cult following to Hellier. Like there people are the people that are all in, I see like being really all in, which is wonderful, but I'm also wondering you know, like you said, you've got other aspects of life, right? Jim's got other aspects of life. I have other aspects. We all have this, like, we love the paranormal, but then there's the everyday that happens and the other things we're interested in. And so as part of this roller coaster, has there been anything that has really caught you off guard as far as like, ooh, that is a weird, like, fallout or just an aspect that you didn't expect to be almost like a negative of this catching the kind of steam that it does, that it has? In negative in the sense of just sort of like which which particular sense of the negative? I mean, fallout? it could be like the way that folks want to engage with you, because obviously, like, mm -hmm. you know, like you're talking <laughs> bless you for being the Shire introvert in with those of us who are like going to come out of the pandemic being like, let's hug. And you're like, I'm not comfortable <laughs> with like that. You can step over there. Like I I pray for. I, pr I pray for my <laughs> introvert friends. I really do. Um, I'm going to really try and be aware of it. But I think that like you've been exposed in this way of like there's the experiments with the Stanley, which is one level of exposure. And then Hellier brings you to this other level of exposure. And I think sometimes folks think that like when you're out in this more public facing way, that that means that you want to be public facing all of the time which yeah. you don't. So I'm just wondering if it's, have there been some like challenges you found in the way that people want to engage with you or um, yeah. even the cult, like st like things like that for you as a creative, but also who's someone involved in this, like, are there ever days that you're just like, uh, not today, hell you're like things like that. <laughs> like, I know that might be yeah. a weird question to ask, but I think about like, I worked on a justice campaign for 11 years and yeah. like, we were all in that together for a really long time. And we still have that bond, but we've all moved on to other things. And it's not that we won't still engage with people in conversations about that and talk to them about what that part of our life is and was, but it's also like, hey, I'm a fully well-rounded, holistic person <laughs> that has other yeah. things going on. So maybe more in that realm, Carl. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly it's certainly tough. Like, uh, it's, I mean, I think any kind of creator that, like, reaches a certain level of attention, like, experiences that where it's this weird double-edged sword where you're like, this is 
this is what you wanted. Like you wanted like the attention and like the support and the interaction and engagement. And, and that's wonderful. It's, it's great. So I, mm-hmm. I never knock it, but it's definitely hard. I think for a lot of creators who are introverts, but, um, a lot of creators too, it's, it's just kind of like, it can be overwhelming sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think that the biggest struggle is that you, uh, like you want to give everyone like equal attention and like that it means so much to like get messages and stuff from people and, and hear their stories. Um, but especially in this dumb pandemic life where like texting people back who are like my friends feels like it takes so much effort mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that that same kind of like weird translation goes over to like social media where I'm just like, I want to write back, but I've like built it up in my brain as being like this big like engagement. And so sometimes it's like easier to just like step aside from all of that. And, uh, um, but yeah, and I think that that's just the the challenge of the creator is is wanting to engage with the people who love the work too, because that means everything to us. But also being like, I'm like an introverted filmmaker and not like a professional like social engager, you know, <laughs> like on on social media. <laughs> yeah. So just kind of like, this is what I wanted, and this is great. <laughs> But this is also not what I'm good at. So it's it's like a, a weird You didn't want a Twitter there. career? I know. What's wrong well, with and you? Of course I did like <laughs> 10 years ago, you know, like Ghost Hunters Academy is like a year old. And I'm like, let's get those Twitter followers. I got hilarious <laughs> tweets coming at everyone. And there's only 300 people watching. And now it's much larger. And I'm just like, it's been like 12 years or 13 years that I've been on Twitter. Like, I think, I think I'm over it. <laughs> and so I feel guilty, but it's just the weird, the weird double-edged sword of it. But, yeah. uh, but I'm very grateful, of course. Jay has a question. He, he asks, how has your experience of the phenomenal changed your approach to the framing of use of color in scenes? That's a great question. I like ah, this question. It's a good question. Um, it might, it might expose more than I want to expose. Um, cause as an artist, like the use of color is like very, you know, different scenes, color emotes, different emotion or promote provokes different emotions. Um, so like you tailor the moment for that. Um, I don't put quite that much thought into it because I'm kind of married to like color looks and schemes that I really love. And that's like, um, very like David Fincher inspired and very like Hannibal inspired. So I like a lot of like green yellows and like teal green kind of dramatic looks. And so I like to bring that into the the whole project and then tweak that for like moments that it doesn't quite work, you know, like a pretty sunset scene. I'm not going to like shift the whole color spectrum over to green just cause I'm stubborn. Um, but I'm not quite as, uh, as artistic about it where I'm like really trying to utilize the color. I think that that's easier in like a, a scripted filmmaking space because you can mm. control the entire set and the art direction of the scene and the lighting before you even get into the color grade. And for me, I'm a lot more driven by just like, this is what this room looks like. We might turn on or off a couple of lamps, but it is kind of what it is. So I can't use color to, to drive home the themes of the story quite as uh, specifically as other filmmaking forms. So my use of color is a little bit more just kind of a nerdy, 
love of very specific <laughs> filmmaking looks. Uh, well, you know, and, and it certainly it certainly creates a tone. Yeah, you know, and, there, and there's that's a what's vibe. Nice imbued. is when the overall yeah. tone of the project uh, can be kind of like presented with that one kind of grade, where it's like beautiful sometimes and eerie and unsettling at other times and that yeah. it can create a cohesive right. look to get both of those experiences. And that's part of the reason why I like really love those colors and that, that kind of grade. Um, so from that's an overall awesome. perspective, it works, but scene by scene is kind of loosey goosey. I'm, <laughs> I'm just ready for Carl to get really bougie and then just say like, Jay, I think you've answered your own question. If you notice my use of color through seasons one and two, and like, that's it. <laughs> like, that's all you say. And yes. then people are like, yeah. And then they go deeper on that. Like you're just throwing out nuggets for people to just go crazy with. Like right. David Lynch, right. you know, when they're just like, explain sure. why you use color this way. And he's just like, no. Right. no mm -mm. Not, not it comes it. from the sky. You're just <laughs> yeah. catching it like a fish flying over you in a boat. Yes. And that's, that's it. You are um, the boat and the fish. Yeah, yeah exactly. A <laughs> uh, couple more questions here. Uh, at Kali's Creation Station asks, so I've watched Hellier so many times now, and I really had a feeling something big was going to happen when you played the tones in unison on the last episode of season two. Me you too. all mentioned feeling the change in the air. Did you see anything in materializing opening, or do you think you're close? Will there be a season three? So it's kind um, of three questions there. Yep, yep. Do you feel like any of you seen saw anything? And if not, do you think you're close to something? And will there be a season three? Yeah, no, didn't see anything. Um, if we would have seen something weird or something like that, we definitely would have <laughs> would have covered it. Put um, it in. I. It's a tough one because I think that the tones. It seems like there's something there. I've mm. you know between how interesting that session was where the tones came up. It's it's a it was a really great Estes session. Um, my own awareness of other researchers who have been working in similar spaces that that tones element comes in and they talk about stuff happening. Um, it seems like there's something there. Excuse me. But um, for my own sort of perspective on it, I think my expectations of something actually happening are typically a little bit more subtle after so many ghost hunts you go on, you know, you'd love to see that full body apparition, but after doing 200 of them, it starts to feel like that might be too big of an ask. And so you're like, I'll settle for the whispered voice in the room, you know? Right. And I think that playing tones in a cave and having something open up starts to feel like a little too big of an ask. Like, so I don't think there's yeah. a part of me that actually expects that to happen, even though it would be mm -hmm. awesome. Um, but something, I feel like some element, you know, especially when it comes to this abstract metaphysical, like something coming through could be in a very non-literal way, but still happens. So I'm, I think that there could be something to that for sure. And there's so many different variations on the tones that we can, that we are going to continue to explore. Um, I'm very curious kind of which one of those sticks. And uh, I hope that they're not all as, as, uncomfortable as the first time uh producing anxiety for myself um <laughs> and yes the plan is is definitely a season three um covid's gotten in the way because we don't really want to um traverse rural areas during this time too much uh for our own safety and for just the awkwardness of like not wanting covid to be like a point of contention um <laughs> while we're trying to like connect with people um yeah and of course to do it safely is the biggest one um 
So once we get out and start shooting again, then it'll be a question of how long until we have enough content for a, a good season three. And that could take two months or four years, you know? So it's, mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm hoping it, that one comes together in some pretty cool ways that like, who knows, we only shoot for like a year. Maybe it's like a season two kind of a thing, but, uh, the problem with documentary style series, letting it unfold, we're kind of like, who knows when it might finally be done. Well, uh, that and magic to start shooting, right? Yeah. Like documentary and magic, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, these things just happen sometimes on their own time frame. Uh, yes. Jay McEdward asks, I'm so interested in the tones. Have you ever tried playing tones continuously while doing Estes method? I'm trying to think, uh, because we did kind of play around with the tones a little bit. We've, we've done, oh gosh, there's been so many like little variations and stuff that we've done and stuff that people we know have done. And I'm just trying to collect it. We've done kind of Estes method type stuff where we've listened to like white noise and pink noise. I think we've listened hmm. to different frequencies of that noise. Um, that could be in a way that the tones could do. I really want to say if, we either really talked about it or we tried it at some point, but I want to hmm. say that at some point we tried to like pipe in a, a tone or the tones. Wow. And an Estes in, into, into the, the cans. Yeah. In, into, into the, the receiver. I want to say, cause if you guys watch spirits of the Stanley, there's a, a number that comes up 440 a couple of times mm -hmm. in the early Estes mm -hmm. method sessions we did. And that's, you know, there's a lot of stuff. With Jay the... McEdward knew he just typed it right in. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. 440. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, the, the 440. So I think we did a lot with that tone trying to do variations of that. And so I think that's where my memory is starting to blur a little bit is what we did with that 440 tone and what we did with like the hellier tones, but we've tried some similar types of experiments back and forth. Um, but I, I can't remember what happened with the Estes method in that 440 tone. But yeah, there's so many things that I we'll see what Hellier 3 is. But um, there could be a lot more, like a ton of cutting room floor stuff where we just do like different versions and tests of different things all the time and mm. scrap them until the one that like produces something interesting. So I think that there's going to be a lot more cutting room floor stuff that would just be like too boring to just be like, yeah, for an hour we listen to this one and nothing happened. So that's episode two. Here it is. Amazon prime. Um, so maybe a montage. <laughs> there we go. There you go. Uh, yeah. Matthew, please hop on with your voice. My friend, we have a uh, Matthew who's going to jump on to ask a question. Here. Hey, thanks for doing this. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Yep, you sound great. Cool. So um, I didn't watch Hellier until this past year, um, 2020, and um, it was hard to take on new content. Like, I had trouble taking on new content. I pretty much just watched Poirot for, like, the whole pandemic when I was at home. Uh, the same <laughs> stuff over and over again. But um, I, did, I did watch Hellier seasons one and two, and um, there was a coziness to the, to the film that I really appreciated. Like... I wasn't expecting that, but it was almost like a um, a kind of a safe sort of camaraderie feeling or, or coziness to it, and aesthetically too. Mm. Like I just liked being in the homes with the low lights and the conversations, you know. And yeah. I think maybe now that I'm thinking about it, maybe that's because we were also isolated, so it was nice to be in mm. people, <laughs> being able to be sociable and social yeah. together. 
but I really appreciated the coziness of it. Um, in the end, the biggest spiriting takeaway for me was the um, emphasis on synchromysticism and synchronicity. I hadn't really seen a lot of programs that developed in the way this did where that was the focal point, and I've always been fascinated by um, synchronicity. And um, <clears throat> during 2020, I noticed, uh, I just... I guess maybe I had a lot of time to myself and a lot of time at home, so maybe that helped with noticing them, but I was noticing a lot of really dorky synchronicities, like a lot of clocks, <laughs> a lot of numbers, a lot of words in songs and words I was typing and stuff. So sure. that was, I found that kind of heartening, and, and, I, and I wonder, like, um, you know, philosophically, um, after going through this project, if you felt like, Oh, the recognition of synchronicity or the concept of synchronicity was kind of a gladdening of your heart in a sense, you know, um, because we talked earlier about that unseen hand or the prime mover or whatever. But um, to me, when, when I experience synchronicities, <clears throat> it feels good to me. Objectively, like I'm like, oh, nice, you know, because it just you get tired of feeling earthy and routiney. And so when those <laughs> things happen, it feels it feels nice. Um, and then I'll quit blabbing with two other things. I haven't read any other Hellier bulletin boards or message boards or anything. So the blue star balloon, like, was that really real? And um, what about the woman that Greg was talking to who was in prison? Because that really, like, that seemed like such a serious part of the story. Um, and I'm like, because I'm, I'm open to a lot of conspiracy things. Yeah. And I was really like, where is this? Because there's a lot of really mentally ill people in the world who are suffering yeah. deeply from all kinds of disorders or whatever. But there's also people that are made to feel sick or, or marginalized because of the things they've experienced or the things they know. So I was wondering maybe if there was any more about her story because I, I haven't read anything and the balloon too. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Great, great questions. Great stuff. Um, Thank you, Matthew. Yeah, I think... I think um, with with Amy's story anyways, uh, to kind of start with the end first, that one was, I mean, you see it on camera a lot. Um, most of the stuff off camera is just more of the same where we're just stressing out over it because there's so many, it's a multifaceted thing that we're presented with there where it's just kind of like um, on every level, it's just kind of like, is this actually connected to this case? Is this something that like, we're the appropriate people to like even look into like is there uh, a disconnect here um, between like something that's actually happening and something that's not exactly happening um there was a lot mm -hmm. of like i mean it's it's tricky because i in a lot of finished products i think you get to see like people compress long stretches of time into mm -hmm. deep dives into a, a sub a uh, piece of content that's maybe dark or scary or controversial, but they get their um, journalistic type stuff. And I think sometimes those like crises of faith are sort of like able to be skipped, you know, when you're like, you've got 90 minutes right. to put it in and ours mm -hmm. unfolding real time was like really difficult. Cause we're like, we're trying to present this person's story that has these like really significant links to um, our experience in case that like, how could she know to use this word? Like we have to follow up on this. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, we're just kind of like, we don't want to like, like cults and weird child situations. It's both tied up in some like 
really problematic stuff that came to a head after even season two came out, uh, kind of socio-politically here in America in the last year mm. that we don't want to like dovetail hellier with because we're not interested in that right. space. Right. Um, but also like more historic ones too of like the satanic panic type stuff where we're just kind of like, we don't like some of the labeling of, of what's being described is like something we don't want to encourage, but we're also mm -hmm. curious about the reality of what's happening there. But also like mm. we want the supernatural stuff and we're not interested in like breaking open like a, a weird cult that's doing crimes here too um as as connor says in, in season two he's like that's for the police <laughs> you know like i think we should go home um, so it was like super just awkward to have all of these things at once and tyler strand screaming at us that we have to go follow up on it <laughs> at the same time um so like managing that was very difficult and so i think um the way it's left at the end of season two is kind of the way it was left in real life where it, it's kind of both a sleeping dog, but also still a lot of questions, a sleeping dog, which is to say letting lie. Um, so I think that there's a lot more in that space, but it's, it's a cost benefit analysis in a lot of ways that we're still kind of mm. going through and experiencing ourselves. So it's, it's a very complicated one um, that also might be intrinsic, intrinsically tied to the phenomenon, the marginality thing. Um, so it's, it's a really complicated space that we want to like not be in danger, uh, handle adequately and appropriately and like not make it something it's not. So it's, it's very complicated. Yeah. And, uh, and the blue star balloon is, is totally real. <laughs> it was like, what the hell was that? That was probably the scariest moment of the, the whole series. Mm. Uh, was that damn blue star balloon. Uh, I love it. <laughs> I love that that happened. That was like one of two moments in season two that were just like, is this real right now? Like this is, this is too good. And usually when it's too good, it's also too freaky. <laughs> you're scared right. for your life and you want to get out of town. <laughs> so when, when you're looking back at season two, for example, and you start to introduce new faces into the mix that are providing either guidance or some sort of insight into what this mystery could be. And you introduce someone like Alan Greenfield. What was that like now with hindsight in your, not just your interactions with him, but potentially his information? What, what, what is your feeling about what that produced and where it stands today? I mean, there's different levels to it, of course. Like there's, there's the level to it for me that I really like expanding the sort of like hellier world on screen, you know, like at, at the end of the day, like I, even as the storyteller get kind of bored of having too much of the same four or five people in a room having conversations together. So I, I like adding new characters and new faces. I enjoy the like controversy of Alan Greenfield, like in that way of just like, are we are we suspicious, you know, or like, is he like on our side or is he Terry wrist or is he the one behind all this? Like, I enjoy that part of it. Um, and I enjoy <laughs> that he was like a cool guy. Cause, um, um, in the, in the world of like occultism, like some people are like very, uh, uh, you know, that, that it's confrontational. Like that space is like, if it's slightly misrepresented or if that person feels mischaracterized, uh, like, like it can get really standoffish really fast if someone doesn't agree with what you're doing. 
and Alan was like super cool. We've never experienced anything like that on this program. Never. No. It, no. That never. That shit never happens. <laughs> I'm, I'm anyway, dipping toes continue. into the too close here. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. And and so for us, like bringing Alan in as sort of a character early on via his book, you know, and, and talking about this Terry wrist figure, I think that, um, you know, and then putting season one out and that sort of starting the dialogues, we reached out to him while we were filming season one, but he had like was between internet carriers or something. So like we couldn't connect. And so season one kind of came out and then it was kind of like, Oh, Greenfield's talking about it on Facebook all right, what's he saying? You know? And like, like that was sort of our like clumsy, like introduction to like, hi, you know? And so he's, he's been very cool about it this, this whole time. And like, he's, he loves what Hellier is like produced and the interest that it's, it's gained in, in sort of some of his ideas and the way that he likes to look at things. And cause he ran with, with sure. that whole crowd, uh, the John Keel, uh, sort of broader crowd of, of the sixties. Um, and so that's been really great. It was just like, um, he's a crazy dude love him like ideas all over the place like we don't know we're weighing everything at all times um so content wise it's very dynamic and interesting still and and i think anything yeah. sort of thelema related is something that we kind of have our own juggle with how far do we take any one of those things but he's been like a, a good support a good sport and uh and super cool to work with so um the yeah. cast of expanded yeah. characters is as long as they play nice, like it's it's usually great. It's great. And I love expanding <laughs> it's something it and bringing to, on more people. Something to look forward to yes. for season three for sure. <laughs> we have a we have a everyone doing okay on time. We'll we'll take this uh, a little bit longer here yeah. if if that's fine with you, Carl. Yeah. And of Darcy. I'm good. Cool. We've got a, a question from Matthew Jackson here, which is really interesting. Uh, Carl, as an ITC enthusiast. I was a poo-pooer of the Estes method initially because of not recording the audio of the ghost box for comparison to the responses of the receiver. Mm -hmm. That being said, I've been pleasantly surprised with the amount of responses I personally have documented that does not seem to be embedded in the spirit box's audio. How much do you feel that the Estes approach leans more towards the uh, physical experiment versus classical or I'm sorry, the psychical experiment versus classical ITC as if classical ITC is a thing. <laughs> yeah. It's great sure question. it is. <laughs> exactly. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that's great. The, uh, oh man, the Estes method is such a weird one because um, it's, it's grown from a place where, you know, the idea at the start of it was to eliminate the group or individual bias of expectation of what you wanted to hear uh, after asking a question from the speaker. And so I think that the, you know, the recording of it was sort of like less to the point so much as like the objective truth of whatever the person said is that's, that's what it is. You know, like we're eliminating the ambiguity of, of a staticky voice as the conversations got more interesting, it became more of a question about where are the voice is coming from. You know, is it a psychical component? Is it an objective ICC result? And we did record some of those conversations. We've plugged multiple people into the same stream. Uh, we have one we want to do where we plug a, a speaker in um, and we listen to the speaker and the person saying the answers. So I think that there's a lot of variations to do to kind of play with that. Um, our biggest problem with it 
is that as soon as we started doing some of these variations at the Stanley, the Stanley ended their work with the ghost hunts. And so we lost our sort of like control area of a haunted location and we never got that back. And so pretty much every time we've been using it since then has been in kind of like one-off situations where it's less appropriate to do some variation to try to dig into a certain question of it so much mm. as just like seeing what that interaction is like given the, the topical mm. situation of the case um, like you see in Hellier. So I would love to continue to experiment because that's kind of where my brain goes and you see that in Spirits of the Stanley, but um, we just don't have a great location that we can kind of like repeat the, the various experiments. Um, past that though, as to what I think is happening, I mean, that's, it's been one of the biggest questions we've been asking from the start, you know, like, is it, is it psychical or, or not? I, one of the things I lean on after leaving the Stanley was um, very much toward that idea of like the, how much group projection in a psychical sense is what's happening when we ghost hunt, you know, uh, right down to the bare bones. I always cite we're 10 people in a room in the Stanley with an open door. And we're saying like to the ghost, like Lucy, close the door, close the door, close the door. And we're all saying it. And then the door closes. Is that us or was that the ghost, you know? And so I think the more I looked at that framework, I feel like every time you're like, you put the burden on yourself or the group, if you told that group, like, let's us try to close the door, the door never closes. So it almost feels like there's like a sense of like conscious responsibility that if you can like put that onto something else, you almost allow like that subconscious ability to like have the room mm. to move where the conscious brain's like, no, it's a ghost doing that. That's fine. And the conscious brain's like, cool. Whereas if the conscious brain is like, wait, this is us. No, this can't be us. We're not, we're not, we don't do that. It doesn't work that way. Like psychic stuff doesn't happen. So I see the conscious brain as sort of a limiter towards the uh, psychic abilities, potentially of the the subconscious brain. And I think that that could be something that's happening in the Estes method, where if you have the conscious brain placated by expecting to hear DJ voices and commercial clips and music clips coming out of that, it could allow the uh, subconscious brain to sort of like project up some of these answers into the brain hmm. where just like listening to white noise and being like, I'm going to come up with like these ghost answers. Like, okay, like let's listen to the ghosts. It might never happen. So that said, you know, like the objective nature of the spirit box goes back to my thoughts on spirit boxes in general, which is that it's, I mean, it's damn complicated, you know, like do ghosts grow <laughs> radio antennas out of their head that can transmit, you know, like, I don't, I don't know how being a ghost works. Um, I've heard some crazy loud and clear <laughs> stuff through spirit boxes, but I also agree that they're broken, broken radios that are easy to hear what you want to hear. So um, as with a lot of things in the paranormal, I'm always of two minds about stuff, but uh, I think that there's definitely some framework for the supposition that the spirit box sort of encourages a, a psychical element for sure. Be that also the trance state that a lot of people talk about, but that's sort of my framework explanation in my own brain about these types of things. That's fascinating. Yeah, so fascinating. Um, Jay McEdward asks, Hellier and Euphemet led me to Kiel and Valet. Oh, that's great. That's such a good feeling. <laughs> and guided my journey to the high strangeness rabbit hole. What led you there? Um, it's been gradual for me. Because I think about this, it's super weird. I uh, 
my introduction to Keel was watching the Mothman prophecies in like middle school, I think. But I didn't <laughs> really know that at the time. I just thought it was a cool, weird movie that was like kind of sure. different from like the normal supernatural or alien thrillers. Um, and so, but I thought that I would have read the book in like high school or something. I feel like I've had it for that long, but like digging around on my records and stuff, I think I read it like late in college, like 2011, 2012 or something. And that time period definitely would have been around the time that I was like taking a lot of recommendations and stuff from John Tenney. So I think that John Tenney was probably the one that put a lot of that onto my radar and like the keel, the passport to Magonia, Jacques Valley stuff. I think I was very much coming from a, a general childlike interest in aliens and X-Files and stuff to being like deep down the rabbit hole of like mysticism in college and the ghost hunting sort of like application of these things. And then Tenny meeting him and becoming his friend was like for a lot of people, uh, that's sort of just like, look how weird it all is. And I was just <laughs> down the, all the rabbit holes after that. Yeah, I was like, this Tenny is really so much better than ghost hunting. has a tendency to change your life, right? Yes, completely. <laughs> and all he has to do is just be like, read these three books. And you're just like, game over man everything's everything's different so yeah probably like everything it all comes back to john tenney darcy you had a similar experience right like tenney helped usher you into another level of weirdness correct yeah i mean for me it's like you know like books and and stuff growing up like that was at the library but he's just you know the way that he makes connections that seems so completely obvious once he said them like you're like of course but then it like i feel like it takes tenny to get there and i think i think that one of the best things about john is that he just gives you the freedom like he's just like we're all weirdos so just like embrace it because like this is what we're doing and i i think i love that and i think seeing all of these different areas and kind of what we were talking about a little bit before we all came on with everybody, but like the idea, like you can like a lot of different things and you don't have to be deep in all of it. You can be like, yes. I'm, I prefer ghosts over UFOs or whatever. I like all these things and, and just yep. being able to check out strangeness, but also have a really good sense of humor at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> it's number important. one, almost that's number one. <laughs> I mean, so and, and you don't have to know everything. No. And you don't have to be interested in knowing everything. I don't you have that like space in like. my brain. <laughs> <laughs> Who does? No one knows what any of it means anyway. Yeah. And no, knowing we everything at this particular stage in the human experience is like, cool. So we know maybe 10 percent you know like what's knowing everything you know <laughs> cool i've caught up to the rest of humanity we still don't know what's going on uh we've got a question here this is from bex and they're a new patron so thanks so much bex for becoming a patron carl are you planning on expanding your videography directorial skills to any new paranormal projects not directly affiliated with hellier mm-hmm Always. Yeah. They're, um, the way of these things, especially in, in COVID land, there's always like five projects kind of being talked about at all times. Um, the most immediate one is, uh, like in the hellier universe, but not hellier, uh, directly related, which is the, the next documentary that I'm working on with Greg and Dana, um, which is about one of their haunted artifacts and it's a feature length documentary. So it's kind of like, 
a one time, you know, like consume that story, scratch the hell your itch a little bit. Uh, mm. It captures no, the same amazing. kind of like flavor and, and excitement without uh, quite the rabbit hole and, and the ongoing story. And it's fun for me as a storyteller to like have a three act, the story's done. Um, so mm. that's, that's oh, the next that's amazing. One. Yeah. I'm uh, working on, I'm just like always, there's a couple of, couple of folks that I'm like always working on ideas and projects with. And, uh, it's just a matter. Most of them aren't so much the challenge of the content. We have a lot of ideas. It's just a matter of like, how is the best way to like practically do this with funding? You know, like if, if the project is going to be more than two weeks, um, you know, how do we pay for it? And that's just, I think a lot of the creative endeavors is just getting it off the ground. So I think that uh, COVID for the last year has been really motivating for a lot of those projects being another year delayed because of the necessity of it that I, I have a feeling that like when things open up in the summer and hopefully we get this thing kind of quashed, um, it might just be off to the races. Things could get, get real busy with, with fun projects, I think. But it, of course you always dance around them as a creative cause you can't talk about anything yet. Cause half of them don't happen and the other half are secret. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, those are the things getting us through, right? Yeah. All together. Uh, thank you so much for coming on here tonight, Carl. Thanks for like, having I, me. This, I appreciate this was one of the best conversations I've had in a long time. Well, yeah, we appreciate you, and everyone was super excited to have you come into this little clubhouse here. Uh, not clubhouse, not, not, not clubhouse. clubhouse. Zoom a on <laughs> clubhouse for patrons. Not resetting the room right now. We're just <laughs> having a conversation is all we're doing here. Anybody getting those jokes? We'll see. Um, <laughs> listen, guys, um, I just wanted to tell you as well, I wanted to share with you uh, my thanks for supporting the fourth season of Euphemet. I've been getting so many uh, really heartfelt messages about how the material is connecting with folks in really uh, sort of deep ways, especially the the last episode uh, featuring Hugo and his his story about, you know, sort of dealing with being an empath and then eventually, you know, through trauma and recovery, uh, finding a way to step into that power and taking almost a responsibility for, uh, you know, becoming a better empath for people and becoming a better person for people uh, in both the physical space and the spiritual space, right? So, you know, I, I think a lot of people connected with that because it's it's something that is happening, that consideration is happening for a lot of people right now. A lot of people are going through this pandemic and thinking about what they want to do on the other side of it. And maybe it's something a little different than what they were doing before. Maybe post-COVID is a story about us reconnecting with our humanity and supporting each other in new and different ways that are much more centered into who we are as individuals and people. So I think that's connecting with people, and I think that's one of the reasons, and I know it's one of the reasons that Euphemet listeners are connecting with it, because that's the sort of folks that gravitate towards that show. Anyone else who uh, is not on that vibe or frequency, I think don't have the patience to listen to Euphemet. Mm. <laughs> like, they might not have the patience to watch Hellier, right? There's something about allowing yourself to to get sort of lost in that... Uh, in that muck 
of ideas and uncertainty and vulnerability that, you know, allows us to connect with each other on that level in a much deeper way. So I, I, all that to say, thank you so much for supporting that. Thank you so much for being patrons. Thanks for buying merch, put up a new merch store with some new designs and stuff. And folks bought that shit up. And I am so thankful for that. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us here tonight. Darcy, thank you so much for for being a, a great co-host again here tonight. Thank you. This is a great conversation. I was excited about it, but like I'm leaving here even more excited about it. <laughs> yeah, not not going to be able to go to bed after this. So let's let's go for a run or something, huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Uh, I love you very much, Carl. Tell us where we can find all of your work before we sign off for good here. Yeah. Basically, social media-wise, I uh, always hang out on Twitter and Instagram, and that's both at Carl Pfeiffer. And then my website is carlpfeiffer.com, which just has a bunch of cool photos and links to videos and just kind of acts as my hub for all things creative that you can branch off from there. So that's uh, that's where you can find me. And then, of course, Hellier is hellier.tv and uh, on Amazon Prime and YouTube. Hmm. Hell yeah. Never heard of it. Yeah. Check, check Don't it out. I think you about it. it. <laughs> <laughs> we say your name in the first three minutes. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> what? Uh, Darcy, how about yourself? Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter, mostly at Darcy Staniforth. So come say hi. And if for some reason uh, you had some weird nickname on here, like, let me know it's you. <laughs> let me know it's you. It's been great to connect with folks out there. I would love to uh, get to connect more. So fantastic come find me all right and i'll be releasing some news soon about uh, doing some more of these um darcy do you want to answer that question uh so heather asked about when the podcast is dropping great question heather we are still waiting on a release date we're finishing up uh the pilot season uh we're doing a lot of heavy editing right now so hopefully i'll have an answer for everybody soon 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 i will i will give you all the info as soon as i have info so thanks for staying in tune with that i appreciate it darcy maybe like when you have a little bit of news and you have the opportunity to release it somewhere first or like have a little bit of a Hmm. preview i think like maybe this patreon would be a good place that would work we could totally do that we can totally do that cool (laughs) sounds good all right everybody have a terrific night uh go and watch some more hellier and we'll we'll talk to everyone soon all right i love you guys take care